Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Buonasera, signore e signori. You're listening to Movie Oubliette, the Cross Hemisphere film review podcast with me, Dan, eating healthy, exercising and staying creative amidst an impending global apocalypse in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, trying to play the wizard's chess game of navigating supermarket shopping in Cambridge, UK. Oh, yeah, it's a bit tricky. In this podcast, <laughs> we discuss forgotten fantastical films, sci-fi, fantasy and horror, because surely reality is just a little too much to deal with right now. Conrad, <laughs> this is our 50th episode. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How are you wow. today? Oh, well, I'm pretty excited about reaching the milestone of 50 episodes. Who would have thought it? That's pretty impressive. I know, I know, I know. Half a century. I know. And it's only taken us, what is it now? This is our second year? Yeah. Are we coming up to our second year in, in July? I, I think? think we are. Pretty impressed with ourselves, if I do yeah. say so. Yes, yes, yes. It is nice to have something to celebrate, because um, obviously it's difficult times at the moment. I've been at home working all the time, which is uh, interesting. So I've been video conferencing with everybody at work, uh -huh. which is unusual. But one fun thing is that because I'm video conferencing from my podcasting studio, <laughs> I'm using the same microphone and yes. everybody on all of their video calls is just using their laptop. So <laughs> in every conference call I'm in, everybody keeps saying, wow, you sound amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are Definitely experienced in that regard. <laughs> How are things for you? Yeah, well, uh, staying home uh, most of the time. I do have a couple of shifts at work, but uh, very, very few. And, you know, just enjoying the time at home and staying creative, making lots of music and getting on top of uh, a bunch of projects I've been meaning to finish. So, yeah, oh. keeping, keeping positive. Yeah. So, Conrad, any mailbag today? Yes, we had lots of mailbag on The Serpent and the Rainbow still. I put out a message asking, what's the worst thing you've ever found in your soup? Referring to the moment when Bill Pullman has a zombie hand waving oh, yes. <laughs> from his soup. And uh, the soup fanatics, Soup on the Stoop, replied, no more soup. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> Similarly, when I put out the question, what's the worst thing someone can do in an audio commentary, referring to the moment when Bill Pullman just wanders out of his after 40 minutes? Oh, yes. <laughs> Ryan Slowinski of Spit and Polish. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Ryan. Said the best ones are when the person doesn't fully understand why they're there in the first place, like Dennis Hopper 
for the Apocalypse Now commentary <laughs> track. Oh, no. <laughs> I've never heard that one. It feels like it's worth checking out just to hear him being bewildered. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should. Yeah. One of my favourites, I remember, was um, Bill Paxton from Aliens. He played Hudson. Yes. God rest him, he's not with us anymore. Neither's Dennis Hopper, mm. actually, for that matter. Oh, yeah. But Bill Paxton on the Aliens commentary track, he was with a bunch of the Marines. Michael Bean was there and... Uh, Jeanette Goldstein, who plays Vazquez, they were all there together. And when his character died on screen, he was asking, does that mean I can't talk on the commentary track anymore? <laughs> <laughs> also, we had a message from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Surge. Hey, Surge. <laughs> and he provided his usual succinct summary of the film. He says, The Serpent and the Rainbow is a study in conflicting tensions. It's clearly got a lot of anti-imperialist sentiment, but it also stems from a sad collection of colonisation stereotypes. Magical Negroes, casting colorism, mm. And the ending, too, is somehow both batshit and perfunctory. Right. <laughs> this is very true. I think it's a lovely way of summarising yeah. it. It's pretty accurate, actually, yes. And most recently on Doomsday, Beach Boy Nick got in touch when I tweeted out an example of the stupidly fast editing in that movie saying, <laughs> holy crap, you weren't joking. That's some fast editing. Haven't seen this movie. <laughs> but again, after your podcast, I feel like I need to. I'm a big fan of The Descent, so I feel this can only let me down. <laughs> oh, yeah. Stay safe, guys. So, yes, thank you for that message, Beach Boy Nick. I hope yeah. you're staying safe too. Mm, mm. Please stay safe. So, Conrad, any fast editing today in the film that we will be covering? Well, let me go and find out. Oh, yes. <gasps> oh, no, I seem to be stuck in between two glass doors. Uh, Conrad, th there's a button. Maybe if I just pat on the windows. Conrad, just, just push the button. Hang on, let me try running up and down frantically. Just... The button, Conrad. The button. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Uh, there's a button. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Ah, here's the movie. Have you ever eaten cats? <laughs> and I'm back. <laughs> and what have we got today? Well, today, in honour of our 50th episode, we will be looking at a film that celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. And it's Dario Argento's directorial debut, the Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Ah, yes. And uh, it is a double blind because none of us have seen it. Double blind. <laughs> yes, it's a 1970 giallo film directed by Dario Argento, starring Tony Musante, Susie Kendall, Enrico Maria Salerno and Eva Renzi with music by Ennio Morricone. So what's this film about? In this movie, Sam Dalmas, an American novelist suffering writer's block, takes a commission to write a book about rare birds to make ends meet whilst vacationing in Rome. On an evening stroll, he witnesses a woman in white struggling with a man in black in an art gallery. Sam tries to intervene, but gets stuck between two glass doors and can only watch helplessly <laughs> as the man escapes and the woman writhes and moans on the floor with a stab wound. For a long time. Mm. A very, very long time. 
Fortunately, when the police arrive, it turns out to be a flesh wound and the woman recovers, but Sam can't shake his obsession with the attack. Convinced he witnessed a vital clue he can't quite put his finger on, he begins to investigate a series of murders of young women in the Eternal City, encouraged by the most unprofessional police inspector in history. Will he discover the identity of the killer? Will his newfound knowledge of rare birds give him a unique insight that will pay off in the end? Because you'd think it would, wouldn't you? You really would, given the title. (laughs) Find out after the break. And we're back to talk about the bird with the crystal plumage, a.k.a. Lucello della Puma di Cristallo. Conrad, (laughs) you hadn't seen this film before. I hadn't either. I'm not a huge fan of giallo, the genre of Italian horror. Right. But I did actually find this quite engaging. Yes. I mean, it's an early entry in Giallo, which of course is based on a whole series of books, I think, mystery, crime, thriller books that were pulpy pot boilers that were published in Italy. And I think the name Giallo, it it just means yellow, doesn't it? So I think it's just because the covers of them were yellow. Is that right? Yeah, Yeah. that's what I heard as well. Yes. Yes. And my friend at work, Barnabas, told me that the plural is i gialli. Ah, So I said to him, that I'd managed to get that in somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, it's an early entry. It's Dario Argento's first movie, so he hadn't emerged fully formed as the auteur of terror that he would become in the years that follow. So this one tends to get overlooked. Mm -hmm. And I haven't seen many of Argento's movies, to be honest. I've seen sort of all the batshit, crazy, supernatural horror ones, like Suspiria and Phenomena. Right, yeah. I've seen three of his films previously before this one. Suspiria, obviously... Every horror fan has to watch that film. Mm. I wasn't a big fan, to be honest. Very stylistic, Mm. beyond realistic. Every scene is just, that's really weird looking. (laughs) (laughs) Why is everything green? And I've also seen um, Tenebrae and Trauma. Tenebrae I actually really enjoyed, and I can see how it's influenced the slasher genre hugely. It's pretty much slasher to a T. Trauma... Very bad. I would not recommend it. It's a 90s Argento film, and the acting in it is horrendous. It's not good. Not a good film. Is that the one that his daughter is in? I think so. Yes, I think so. Oh. (laughs) Asia Argento. So it's kind of like Godfather Part (laughs) 3. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Um, Argento for me is very hit and miss. He's kind of like Carpenter for me, John Carpenter. Mm. There are some standout amazing films, masterpieces, and then there are films that just are so below par. I can't believe it's the same director. But this film for me was actually very engaging and I was gripped by the plot. I was gripped by the characters in this film. Just an assortment of very quirky and odd characters throughout the film. (laughs) And I really liked even the main character. And it wasn't full-on Jalo as well. Mm. There wasn't a huge amount of nudity. The killings weren't too explicit. 
it wasn't as theatrical as some other Jalo films that I've seen. No, you're right. It's an early entry for Dario. And as I said, his style hadn't really reached the ridiculous heights that it got to, sort of operatic ridiculousness. Of course, he did a film called Opera at one point. Yes, he did. <laughs> so he's credited as being in the Italian tradition of taking Hitchcock, who created a complex visual language that's all based on different points of view on seeing mm. and using that to propel a narrative in a really engaging way while still so exposing the underlying voyeuristic nature of cinema. So Hitchcock was a master of that and Mario Bava, who preceded Dario Argento in the Italian school of Giallo, would take that approach but use the same techniques just to manipulate the audience and would kind of let the narrative side of things slide and focus more on just suspenseful effects. And I love Kim Newman describes Argento as the Vincente Minnelli of ultraviolence. Oh, yes. So if you imagine Vincente Minnelli, who was Liza Minnelli's dad, he was a famous director of musicals like Meet Me in St. Louis and Gigi and An American in Paris. And he would orchestrate these beautiful, overwhelming musical numbers that were just visually amazing to look at. Mm-hmm. And it would just completely blow your mind as an audience member. It would just be this outrageous explosion that would just override reality completely Mm. and i think kim newman is saying that argento does the same thing with murders with the kill scenes Mm. but they're stylish in this film Mm. but they're not ridiculous or grotesque yes and they're not too drawn out as well because i do find with argento's murder scenes they're way too drawn out and almost very gratuitous almost like i I want this to stop now why is it still going on and why are there so many close-ups yes (laughs) because he does a lot of close-ups yes (laughs) and always beautiful women or quite often beautiful women which resulted in various comments about misogyny being directed towards him and i think he was famously quoted for saying that he would much rather watch a beautiful woman die than an ugly girl or a man (laughs) okay Uh, Well, he's just looking at it from the point of view of aesthetics. He's not particularly trying to suggest that beautiful women should be killed for spectacle. But still, Mm. it's a little bit troublesome. (laughs) Yeah, I did find with this film, even though it was obviously it's his first film that he's ever directed, he hasn't really developed as a filmmaker. But there are so many signature techniques that I kept seeing in this film. First of all, obviously, the murder scenes and his use of really shiny knives. Oh, yeah. All the knives and all the blades in all of his films are ridiculously shiny. Mm. It is obviously a stylistic choice. His use of very bright red paint-like blood Mm. just splashed around (laughs) all over the place. And often he uses a lot of bright colours in his movies as well, so it, it often looks very striking. Even the attempted murder of Monica in the art gallery, it's it's all white everywhere and Mm. then the red contrasting with the white. It looks like an art piece almost as she's kind of writhing around on the floor. And yeah, a lot of very voyeuristic cinematography in this film. When you're following the killer, it's always kind of from the killer point of view Mm. and you only see the gloves of the killer or the back of the killer or the killer will be backlit and it's just like a silhouette. And it's, yeah, every scene was just 
beautiful, mm. very well framed, very well lit as well. Compare that to Doomsday. <laughs> it's like a work of art, this film. <laughs> it is, yeah. Every frame of it you could blow up into a poster, couldn't you? Yes, and just very deliberate camera movement. So the cinematographer, Vittorio Storaro, mm. uh, he went on to do films Apocalypse Now and the fourth, uh, I think it's the fourth Exorcist films. You know, it got filmed twice. Oh, gosh. The fourth Exorcist film. <laughs> yeah. There are two versions of it. And it's really weird. Well, he's done both of them. I know. I would love to do, because both of them are in the Oubliette. They were both flops. Yeah. I would love to do an episode where we watch both. <laughs> I watched them in succession because I was going through a huge Exorcist marathon. Mm. And it's so strange. Yeah. It's like two pretty much identical films, but with completely different storylines. Yeah. With the same actors. Same actors, mostly. Same location. Yeah. Same sets. Same crew yeah. as well. It's really weird. It's just it, weird. It is. I love it. <laughs> anyway, so the cinematographer went on to do that. And also Lady Hawk oh. and uh, The Last Emperor. So he has a very, very artistic style and it really shows in this film and visually it's a very captivating film yeah controversially Vittorio Storaro developed this fixation that there should be a new aspect ratio that's two to one okay instead of 2.35 to one cinemascope and so he's cropped all of his movies he's forced all of his movies to be cropped even Bernardo Bertolucci films like The Last Emperor he's cropped them an apocalypse now oh but fortunately the bird with the crystal plumage has survived unscathed and we can still see that in its full width. Oh, right. Because he does use the full <laughs> width of the frame in these compositions. It is remarkable the way that he uses the frame. Mm. And particularly in that museum sequence, it's such a beautiful sequence of shots and I noticed that the camera doesn't move in any of them. Right. It's just lots of beautifully composed static shots. So it becomes all about the editing, the framing, who is looking where and when, mm -hmm. and also the sound. The sound plays a big part in that scene as well, how it is virtually silent for a large portion of it, and then all of a sudden the silence is broken by a car rushing by. Uh -huh. So the sequences are amazing, but they're not gratuitous or exploitative. Well, there are a few scenes that are exploitative. Yes. Yeah, there's <laughs> one in particular that yeah was just screaming out, this is classic giallo right here mm. i think it was the second victim in the film yeah and obviously there's nudity as well and it just feels very icky but i mean that's just the style of this genre it is um, yeah. so if you aren't accustomed to it it can be a bit hard to watch yeah. as well it it's, is uh, yeah and especially i mean certainly the accusations of misogyny tend to be directed to dario because he is the person in the gloves in all of those scenes yes so whenever you see somebody running a very shiny blade over a naked woman's breasts and ripping her underwear off. That's the director doing that. Mm. And his excuse always was, you know, I wanted it done a particular way, so the quickest way to do that was to just do it myself. But still, you sort of feel for the actress in that situation, like, here's the director. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. It's a bit icky. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. 
going into spoilers straight away and giving away the ending. Mm. The killer ends up being a female. Yes. And I did not expect that. And I thought that was the greatest twist ever. I I thought it was really cool. (laughs) That's why throughout the entire film you don't see the killer's face. Because if you did, it would just give away the whole twist. Mm. And it kept it very mysterious throughout the film because I had no idea. It was almost like the killers like Jason and Michael Myers, just an entity almost. Mm. It's not even a real person that just lurks in the shadows and is able to go places and get into buildings miraculously. Yeah. And I really like that in this film. Apart from obviously when, when she's revealed and obviously she has a maniacal laugh and she's evil and just insane. But until then, there was just a lot of mystery and um, complexity and it wasn't cliche mm. either I, I felt with the plot and the, all the characters that kept popping up it was a very sort of murder mystery like who done it storyline which i really loved yeah and it's interesting you say that about the slashes because i think this really does pave the way for the slashes the giallos did anyway mm. as i say taking hitchcock and dispensing with narrative and just becoming these almost like musical number, melodramatic, overblown death sequences. And then you can see eventually that evolving into Halloween and particularly the Friday the 13th series. But it just becomes all about these death sequences and the narrative in between is pretty dispensable. Yeah. One thing about this movie I found confusing, the whole middle section, as you say, it just becomes this parade of fascinating character actors doing very amusing bits. Yeah. Like the stuttering pimp in jail and the informant who thinks he's being recorded so says the opposite of what he means and then immediately says what he really means afterwards. (laughs) Sort of this parade of character actors doing these funny turns in a middle sequence of him investigating, as far as I can tell, just completely the wrong thing. Mm. It's a whole bunch of red herrings that has nothing to do with who the killer is. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, uh, there was so much humour injected in this film Mm. that (laughs) was very unexpected. Expected every single character, like you said, was just the oddest, quirkiest, strangest character you've yeah. ever met before. The painter, oh god, best scene ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> strange. Cat eating. I will get into it when we get into it. <laughs> I'll get into it in the mood, please. Yeah, but yeah, every character, even the lineup scene, oh, so hilarious yeah. and. I think that's what was so great about this film. It wasn't just serious the whole way. Mm. There was so many moments of humour. And when you break down the investigation by Sam, who is not a detective or anything, he's a writer, Mm. he's a witness, and so why is the police inspector giving him all the evidence and all the suspects and all of the previous victims, their addresses, their names? It's it's, it's ridiculous. It's a bit I bizarre. kept writing down every time that police inspector, what's his name? Morosini? Shows up. He does something that's completely irresponsible (laughs) like just shows up at sam's flat to tell him about the next murder that's happened Uh just in passing yeah and then gives him the details of one of the victims where they live and then sets up a meeting between him and one of the victims who was a prostitute their pimp so he can meet him and talk to him and you think Sorry, who's investigating this crime? Is it the police (laughs) or just this random American writer 
who got caught up in it. It's, it, mm. it's so unprofessional. I mean, the way he behaves in the lineup, again, I will keep for the movies. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love the informal, bro relationship between Tony Masanti's character, Sam, and the inspector. Yeah. So much so that as he's walking out of the station at one point, he's saying, oh, I've got to go and do a press briefing and... And Sam says, what will you say to the reporters? And the inspector says, oh, don't worry, I'll make up some spectacular lie. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Complete dereliction of duty. It's just astonishing. Mm, mm, mm. But it does make the film constantly entertaining and amusing. Oh, yeah, because he's getting all of these leads just given to him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and it's not really until Reggie Nolder shows up as this yellow-jacketed assassin. I have no idea why. I just cannot follow the middle section of this movie at all. But all of a sudden, Reggie Nolder shows up and tries to kill Sam. Mm. At that point, the inspector says, oh, maybe you should go back to America. So finally, he's realised that he's putting this guy in harm's way by doing what he's doing. Yeah. Exactly. I, I mean, I was maybe a bit confused by yeah some of the characters that were trying to kill Sam. So there's that, that very foggy scene where he's walking down the street and he almost gets cut up by a meat cleaver by a guy on the street yeah. and only escapes because a random woman goes, watch out! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, otherwise, he would have been dead instantly. What I love about that scene is he's so unbothered about it because when the old lady who saved his life by shouting, she asks him if he's okay and he says, yeah, it's fine. Just in that sort of tone of voice. Yeah. He was almost beheaded yeah. by a random person on the street at night in the fog. And he's fine with that. He just goes home and talks to his girlfriend as though nothing's happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do have to clear some things up. So the story of this film is there's a serial killer killing off all these beautiful women. And it turns out to be Monica, who was at the very start of the film, the girl that gets stabbed by the man in black. Mm. But the man in black ends up being her husband. So is she the one that's killing all of these girls or is it her husband that's killing for her. I think it's her that's doing it, but I do think the husband is participating in some way or trying to throw them off the scent because at one point they say that the phone calls that Sam starts to get at home, the taunting phone calls that he records that eventually provide the vital clue that they need at the end of the movie, they say that they're coming from two different voices. Yeah. So I assumed that the wife and the husband were making the phone calls Right. I'm not sure why, but certainly the husband was trying to cover it up and even quite literally takes the fall for her Yeah. Uh, at the end of his... Yes. Yeah, yes. plunges himself out of a window after confessing to the crimes mm-hmm. when it was actually his wife the whole time. And yes, the reason why Sam's got this thing bugging him, something about the scene I saw was wrong, something was wrong, is because when he saw it, it was actually her that was holding the knife and her husband was fighting with her and she obviously got a flesh wound accidentally during the exchange. Mm. But I think it's her that's killing everybody. What I'm not quite clear on is why. Yeah, my understanding is, so the painter paints this gruesome painting of a woman getting attacked and getting cut up by some attacker. Mm. And it turns out that she actually was that woman that he based his painting on. Yeah. And so she ended up being traumatised by the event but relating more with the killer instead of the victim. And so she ends up 
killing. So the people that are trying to kill Sam during the film, are they the husband? I mean, the scene in the foggy alley, that's, is that the husband or is that oh. Monica? And then they hire an assassin to kill him in that bus depot. I'm not sure. No, I'm not sure where the Reggie Nolder character, I think he's called Needles. I'm not sure where he comes from. I got the sense that he was more tied up with the pimps. I just thought that whole section in the middle is just a red herring and actually it's only acts one and three that really matter. But I'm not sure. I mean, you make a good point. It could quite easily be the husband that's trying to chop off Sam's head in the foggy night after his first police interview because his wife was still recovering. Yeah, that's true. I can't see her slapping on the black gloves and popping out for a quick hatcheting, but who knows? Yeah. (laughs) And if the Reggie Nolder character Needles, if he is hired by them to kill him, they kill him and stuff him in a wardrobe later on, so... Yeah. Uh... I'm not sure what's going on there at all, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) The flashback scenes, whenever Sam is trying to remember what he found odd about that sort of attempted murder at the start that he witnesses, Mm. I love how there's no sound in any of those scenes. And it makes it much more uncomfortable to watch because he's trying to remember and it just flashes to these flashbacks. And it's, um, I love it. I, because I'm so used to modern day flashbacks where it's just hyper real mm. and there's some crazy filter and, and the sound is ridiculous. Like in the early 2000s with TV shows like CSI where it's just <laughs> ridiculous amounts of sound and all the senses are just heightened because of these flashbacks, whereas there's yeah. so much restraint in this film. That's what I really found quite refreshing because I am used to Jalo films being overly theatrical and overdramatic and melodramatic, mm. in fact, whereas this was very restrained in a lot of scenes, and I loved that. Yeah, I particularly like the scene where he's just had sex with his girlfriend, Julia, mm. Susie Kendall, the English actress, and he's lying in bed... And he's still thinking about the murder. And it just cuts from these really interesting shots, like one where he is facing towards the camera and Julia is in profile and you can see his eye and one half of his face over her profile and they're sort of merging into one and he's just staring blankly towards you. Mm. And you're cutting from shots like that soundlessly to various different replays of that signature moment in the art gallery. Sure. And the shots pause and zoom in. And it's like he's obsessively replaying that moment very much in a cinematic style. It's very much Mm. film as memory, which I found fascinating. It's the same thing that I really enjoy in De Palma movies, which is I think De Palma often has these obsessions with dissecting a single moment from lots of different characters' perspectives. Blowout is a classic example of this. And the Nick Cage movie Snake Eyes, which goes over the same event time and time again from different people's perspectives in all of these wonderful different slow-mo and close-up shots and inserts. And it's all meticulously worked out. I just love when cinema is used to display this obsession over memory Mm. and how memory tricks us, which is something that Argento is fascinated by, I think. Yes, agreed. Complete aside... Why is it that Sam and Julia have sex with a metronome? I know. I uh, I don't know. <laughs> Aesthetics. 
keeping rhythm. I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say maybe they're using the rhythm method of contraception. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm here all week. <laughs> yeah. But back to the topic in hand. I do love the framing of shots in this movie. Some of them are so beautifully composed, like the scene where Sam discovers Reggie Nalder's body in that horrible dingy flat that he's living in. Mm. You just have that beautifully orchestrated sequence where he's in the foreground and then he bends down to look at something and as he exits shot it racks focus and you can see the body stuffed in the closet on a shelf, I think, in a really unnatural way and it's got these glassy eyes staring at you Mm. and then he stands back up again and it's hidden. It's just very well orchestrated, some of these sequences. Mm, And no ridiculous jump scare music cues either. No. It's just very uneasy and um, tense. Makes it so disturbing. Yeah. There's also another scene where he is uh, investigating the apartment at the end and he ends up finding his friend killed sitting in the armchair but when he first enters the room it's like really low shot and you see Julia tied up and gagged on the ground but he doesn't see her Mm. it's this really nice way of telling the audience what could or is about to happen but the character in the scene doesn't know yeah and it's uh yeah really great sort of suspenseful moment it is yeah apparently originally argento wanted her character to die oh and tony musante said that he would quit the movie if they killed off Susie kendall that she deserved to live until the end Right. Quite chivalrous of him. So well done, Tony Musanti. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although I did read that Argento found Tony Musanti like the most difficult actor to work with. Yeah. Because he was so obsessed with getting his character right that he would show up to his apartment at 3 a.m. to talk about it. And Argento was like, just stop it. Just, <laughs> just leave me alone. Just do what I tell you to. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they did not have a good time. And this was one where he put his foot down and kept Susie Kendall in the movie. So that's uh-huh. it had some good results in some cases. Yeah, true, true. I didn't think it ruined the movie at all, the fact that she didn't die. I kind of was expecting her to die and I was just waiting for it to happen. Mm. And so it was actually kind of a relief that there was a little bit of a happy happy ever after at the end yeah i like that as well especially seeing as she's not been given a great role for the rest of the movie she's kind of the thankless character in the background sure then when the killer shows up at her apartment you have that long sequence where she's just sort of staggering around shrieking rather than doing anything particularly useful yeah Um, (laughs) much like shelly duval in the shining years later yeah I do feel that that scene was very classic Jalo. Mm. Just a lot of shrieking and close-ups and very melodramatic. Yeah, and it's very much the suffering of women as a spectacle in much the same way as the second killing, which is very sexualized and has all these mm. close-ups of open, glistening mouths, screaming and hands clutching on bed sheets. It's very sexual and mm. Yeah, that's the whole aspect of it that's just a bit icky. Yeah. But at least Susie Kendall gets to live to the end. Although I often wondered, what is it that passes between her and the inspector in that scene? Because he says to her, we've met before. And she says, no, we haven't. And wanders off. And it's they never go back to it. Oh, yeah. What, what's going on that's there? Right. I don't know. She got a secret career as a prostitute in Italy or something. <laughs> oh. She's trying to put behind her. I don't know. Something's gone on there. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
changing a subject a little bit, uh, I love in these kind of older films when they have sort of scientific scenes. Oh, yeah. That they just spout complete garbage. It makes no sense, <laughs> really. Um, in a room full of just spinning tape reels in the background and lots of flashing buttons and stuff. Yeah. It's hilarious. I love so that stuff. Uh, when when they're the comparing the two uh, recordings of of the phone <laughs> messages from the killer, they're just turning on these oscilloscopes and comparing them. It's like, what are you doing here? <laughs> I don't see what you're comparing, apart from the actual recordings themselves. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you about the audio wizardry of the Italian police because. Not only are they able to play an isolated track of the rhythmic creaking sound that proves to be vital in determining the identity of the killer, Mm -hmm. even though it's in the background underneath the killer whispering, so I don't quite understand how they're then able to play it isolated. And second of all, they're able to determine that the calls are made by two different people, as I mentioned before, by looking at an oscilloscope and measuring the decibel level of vowel sounds. Yeah. Is that something that makes any sense to you? Well, I mean, <laughs> during that scene, I just thought they're just talking complete garbage right now. Like, <laughs> this is just jargon that they've looked up in some audio textbook or something. Yeah. But <laughs> I did kind of decipher it because they were talking about the level of, I don't think they were talking about really decibels. I think they were kind of more focusing on, it's almost like range. Uh, One recording was very low as in like a man's voice. Right. And the other recording was higher, like a woman's voice. Uh, and I didn't realize that until the end when the twist is revealed that, oh, of course. Yeah. There's two recordings of a female and a male and I think that's what they were trying to get at. But at the time, I just thought this is just mumbo jumbo. Like, yeah. <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> and similarly, the end of the movie has the same fatal flaw that Psycho has. After the identity of the killer is revealed, and it's sort of shocking because it's psychologically bizarre, Yeah, you end up with the scene where a bunch of professionals sit around a desk and explain to you exactly why that person behaved in that way. And in Psycho, it's just painful and it goes on for so long Mm. whereas in this movie it's just in a tv studio chat show the inspector seems completely bored yeah and they hand over to this scientist who just says yes she suffered a trauma and during that trauma she identified with her attacker rather than herself so she started killing women yeah sorry hang on rewind a little why yeah (laughs) has that ever happened to anyone (laughs) ever before, that they identify with their attacker rather than themselves. Mm. And Eva Renzi, the German actress who plays Monica, was not particularly enthused by the role at all. I saw an interview with her in 2005 where she talks about how easy it was to play the role, that she was just leaping around, cackling and grinning Mm. and stabbing in the finale. And, yeah, she said it destroyed her career. Really? Yeah. It's really sad to hear her talk about it because she was due to star in a film called House of Cards in 1969, which didn't go on to be a big hit, but she thought it would lead to greater things because she was starring opposite Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. But her husband, Paul Hubschmidt, forced her to drop out of it. He said that it was a silly movie. Okay. Inga Stevens got the role to much acclaim and a fantastic career. And Eva Renzi ended up in Bird with a Crystal Plumage just to pay the rent. 
and said that it just destroyed her career and oh, she wow. spotted on into the 80s with a few roles and then vanished. Oh, wow. And she was talking in the interview about how she was hoping that she'd be able to have a bit of a rebirth in her career now because her daughter was being successful. But this was 2005 and when I looked her up, she died of lung cancer the same year. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Poor Eva Renzi. I'm really, I'm very surprised it killed her career because, yeah, she was very good in this film. She was, yeah. <laughs> Now it's time for Random Trivia! So Dan, what piece of trivia has been hiding in plain sight like a vital clue in a murder mystery today? (laughs) Well, I've got sort of a more of a quick-fire series of trivia about this film. So, first off, uh, the script was written by Dario Argento in five days, and the whole movie was filmed in just six weeks. Wow. Which is insane, because it looked so good. Also, the film was so popular in Italy when it first came out that it was played in Milan for three and a half years. Uh, Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, so every day you could go see this film, I guess, for three and a half years. Wow. In Milan. (laughs) And a last tiny little bit of trivia, it's more relating to uh, a film that we've previously done. So the painting of uh, the girl getting killed that's shown in the film is very, very similar to another painting by Pieter Bruegel the Elder, uh, his painting, The Hunters in the Snow. And that painting was also featured in uh, a film that we've done before, Melancholia. So that's... uh, Yes. That painting just shows up everywhere. I thought I recognised the style. Because it's a very particular style, isn't it? It's almost childish, Mm. which is why... You've got this lovely picturesque snowy scene that you could half expect to get on yeah. a Christmas card and in the middle of it there's a murder yeah. going on. Although I did find it almost cartoony. Like, this, is this supposed to be funny? <laughs> <laughs> well, and then you get to meet the painter. So. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> and that explains a lot. <laughs> so that's our trivia. Should we talk about the score? Oh. The very famous Ennio Morricone. Indeed, yes. I was trying to get a summary of exactly how many scores Ennio Morricone has scored. And I think it's like... Oh, yes, I looked it up. (laughs) It's like Clint Eastwood's children. Nobody's exactly sure (laughs) how many he, he is responsible for. But in Ennio Morricone's case, it's over 400. Yeah. So... The guy's busy. (laughs) Yeah, I looked up his IMDb just to get a gauge of other films he's done. And I just kept scrolling (laughs) and scrolling and scrolling and it didn't end. (laughs) He is a busy man and he continues to be busy at the age of 91. And just recently won won his first Academy Award for Quentin Tarantino's movie, The Hateful Eight. Nine years after he got his honorary Academy Award, which is usually the one they give to people to just, look, you've been great, you've been nominated five times, you should have won by now. (laughs) We think you might not be around for much longer, here's a prize. Here you go. (laughs) Nine years later, he's still busy and he won, so that was great. Mm. He's worked in so many different genres and it's fascinating because you can always tell that it's him, but it's always different. And yes. it's always fascinating yes. the way that he uses music and different ensembles 
to do different things. Mm. This one is a small band of people and it's very much in sort of a nouveau jazz style and I believe it's entirely improvised. It sounds like it, actually. I did note down it sounded very live, mm. like a bunch of musicians in a room just microphoned up and playing off each other. It didn't sound tracked or anything. It didn't sound very strictly composed that they weren't following bar lines um yeah there were moments in the film that were kind of almost free jazz like with very jazzy drumming and um, trumpet playing reminded me of um the birdman soundtrack and yeah it made the chase scenes in this film very interesting to watch because it wasn't what you expected you know you expect high strings and Mm. percussion but you got free jazz instead so it was a different experience yeah no i think it's exactly that on the making of they were saying he just got a bunch of players in a room they played the movie and they just freestyled all over it until they got something that they liked right which is amazing and it's ennio morricone himself on the trumpet that's his instrument oh right all those those strange noises you can hear that's the man himself i did not know that yeah it's amazing it's unique it gives the film an entirely original flavor all of its own and yet it's deeply disturbing i thought you'd particularly enjoy being quite an avid percussionist yourself the scenes where it's just percussion everywhere just clusters of stuff jangling away yeah making you feel really tense yes it's not typical stingers and build-ups mm. you just didn't know what was going to happen next at any given time Yeah, and then you've got other parts of the film which have vibraphone, some Mm. kind of glassy percussion sounds, really, really eerie sounding, Mm. and also coupled with these really bizarre vocals over top, like these female la-la-la-la-la vocals over top and breathing throughout the score as well. So you've got a woman breathing, a Oh, just so yes, uneasy. which when you get to the final twist makes perfect sense. Yes, but yes. during the movie, you're just thinking, "What the hell is this?" Because it sounds almost sexual on the soundtrack. She's sort of, ah, ah. yeah. <laughs> thinking, what is this I'm listening to? Yeah, <laughs> this is really strange. <laughs> Yeah, so it's all very unsettling and unexpected. Yeah. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Yes. Like you mentioned, Ernie Morricone always uses very bizarre instruments that you don't think would go. Mm. Uh, And he paves the way for copycats copying him. I mean, take mm-hmm. the Clint Eastwood movies, the uh, Spaghetti Westerns that he scored, where he would put a, what, it was an ocarina or something, <laughs> yeah. and like all sorts yeah. of very strange instruments that you would not normally associate with a Western, but went on to be in all Westerns and everyone just copying what he had laid down as foundation for Western scores. Yes. I think Dario Argento is incredibly lucky to have Ennio Morricone on his first film and certainly for his first two or three films. Eventually they fell out. So that's why you have Goblin on Suspiria. Right, yes, all that synth prog. Yeah, (laughs) which I don't like as much, although I do enjoy it. I don't like it as much. I Certainly, I think in Suspiria, having the vocalist just go, witch, all the way through the movie. (laughs) It's a bit on the nose and crap, to be honest. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Complete change of topic here. So this film is called The Bird with a Crystal Plumage. At the start, you have Sam, who is a writer of, I don't even know what, uh, going to 
a museum with many, many stuffed birds everywhere. Yes. But he does not, in fact, have that much knowledge about birds no. because his <laughs> friend is the one that gives him the tip-off at the end. Yes, that's right. Uh, as I alluded to in my silly synopsis at the beginning, <laughs> he's been hired to write this book about rare birds Oh, right. Because he just needs some money. Yes. And he's so unenamored of this project that when they give him the cheque and offer him a copy of the book that's just been published, he doesn't even want a copy of the book. He's not proud of this. Sure. So maybe that's the clue, is that he's written a book on rare birds, but he just didn't pay any attention and it's just gone in one ear and out the other. But it, yes, you're right. It's his friend that provides the vital clue at the end of the movie, which is identifying the creaking noise on the tapes as a bird call. Yes. When they were looking at various different recordings of machines to yes. try to identify what machine it was. Mm, mm. Apparently the bird that you're shown in the movie is not a bird with crystal plumage. Well, yeah, uh, the little plaque on the bird cage when they're at the zoo, I tried to Google it and that bird does not exist. No. <laughs> so I just Googled the bird from the movie The Bird with the Crystal Plumage and it is not what that plaque said at all and it's not even a bird that they in the movie the character states is only found in Siberia because it's not found in Siberia it's found in eastern and southern Africa and it's the national bird of Uganda and it's called a grey crowned crane so I don't know why they didn't just go with its actual name (laughs) but I I guess they wanted it to be even more obscure. Yeah, I don't know. Or they just didn't care. It, it, this is These are the days before Wikipedia, so I guess it's harder to find things out. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. You would have to look up your <laughs> edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica to try and find out. Yeah, so this is the central tenet of the movie and it doesn't really hold up to any close scrutiny, but I, I really don't think they care. <laughs> I don't think they care about it at all. Yeah, I did find... Uh, like that that sort of vital clue was very sort of Hitchcockian in terms of, of mm. the murder mystery. It is, and it's a signature part of Argento's entries into this whole giallo genre, is a central moment during the initial killing that bugs this artistic character for the rest of the movie because he's sure that he's seen something that he can't remember. Mm. And Deep Red is probably the best one. That's the one where David Hemmings actually has seen the face of the killer and so has the audience, but we just didn't realise it. All right. It's due to a bit of very clever misdirection. I haven't seen that yet. Ah. Still haven't seen that. I won't spoil it any more than that Mm. if you haven't seen it yet. Yeah, right. That's a good one. (laughs) I do find the more horror films I watch and also read, often the characters are writers. Mm. And I always think it's just a writer putting him, herself or herself in the story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, Argento always has artistic figures. He never has these private detectives. It's not like Agatha Christie where you've got Uh, Marple and Poirot. It's always these struggling artists that are obsessed and suddenly realise that their glossy bourgeois world is teetering on the edge of insanity and there's this whole underworld when they just scrape away the surface of craziness and murder. He's done sort of three or four of them. I think three of them are called like the Animal Trilogy because there's The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, The Cat and Nine Tales and Four Flies on Grey Velvet, all Mm -hmm. produced in the space of three years. And 
have animals mentioned in the title. I think that's the only connection. Oh, yes. And then sure. there's Deep Red, which is a masterpiece and sort of veers much towards the supernatural because that has a clairvoyant in it and that sort of tips him over into the sort of crazy supernatural stuff that he did thereafter. Sure. Until his films started to get a bit crap <laughs> in the 90s. <laughs> the 90s. <laughs> mm. Yeah. 90s Argento is very much like 90s Carpenter, I think. <laughs> Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. Hey, are you all looking over your shoulder in fear of a leather-clad, crazed serial killer? Well, rest assured that the Movie Awards are here to calm your nerves. It's where we nominate our favourite parts of the film in a number of non-necessario categories. <laughs> I love all the Italian you're feathering into this episode. <laughs> Best quote. I have a suspicion we both have the same favourite quote here, but it comes from the scene where Inspector Morazzini is initiating a lineup of suspects oh. for Sam to review. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> and he begins it by shouting, Right, bring in the perverts. <laughs> you are 100% correct. That's my favourite quote as well. I love, as the scene progresses, uh, a guy in drag walks on and <laughs> the inspector exclaims, What's this guy doing here? He belongs with the transvestites, not the perverts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most 70s moment. My most 70s moment is the wildly optimistic expectations of what computers might be capable of. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> For example, <laughs> after being fed bits of forensic evidence about blood splatters and a rare fibre from the UK, the printer is able to print out a silhouette of the killer based on this yeah. information <laughs> on a dot matrix and it comes out this dark figure hmm. with a hat and an overcoat <laughs> it's like what yeah i know it's printed out in zeros or something as well yeah, isn't it? yeah. it's terrible uh my most 70s part of film it's not really 70s but it, it was just something that tickled me a little uh it's when you see a national news bulletin is watched by a group of people on the street watching a black and white TV in a shop window because that <laughs> is not going to happen anymore. Uh, but I guess <laughs> that's how they got their news feeds from shop windows. <laughs> yeah, because not everybody had a TV. It's true, actually, Sam didn't have a TV, did he? No, that's true. That is very I true. I think he did. Yeah, was yeah. a commodity back then. Yeah, very much of the times. Best hair or costume. I don't know whether mine was my favourite, but it was something that was just utterly disgusting. So Inspector Morosini's ratty-looking moustache, which was, like, <laughs> shaved at the top. It wasn't as sort of thin and long as, like, a John Waters gross pencil moustache, yeah. but it just looked like almost like a mini moustache just <laughs> on the top of his lip, just like a tiny little moustache. <laughs> My favourite costume is the baby doll nightdress worn by the second victim because it's not oh. tantalisingly risque. 
It's completely see-through. She may as well not yeah. be wearing anything at all. Why is she wearing it? And it's it barely comes down to her hips. It's just ridiculous as a piece of nightwear. I don't know why she's sure, wearing it. Sure, sure. Favorite scene. So, my favorite scene. Mm-hmm. I think I have mentioned it. It's the painter scene. I mean, the whole <laughs> sequence of events. It's like the best punchline to a gag I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, it's So Sam goes to visit the painter, Berto Consalvi. Uh, so Consalvi invites him to dinner. He's wiping down the plates and cutlery with a, with a tea towel or something mm. and starts serving food. Sam then proceeds to rewipe the cutlery <laughs> and throws food on the floor for some reason. <laughs> and then almost immediately, Consalvi takes his plate away before he's even had two mouthfuls. So he's still trying to stab at food while it's been taken away. <laughs> and then Consalvi jumps up uh, to show him a painting, opens the door, a cat escapes from the room and he's trying to wrestle his cat. He puts it back in the room in a cage Sam asks him, why are your cats in cages? And then he, uh, Consolvi, replies, well, I want to fashion them up. And then Sam says, but why do you want to fashion them up? <laughs> and then Consolvi says, uh, the uh, immortal words, well, I eat them. <laughs> and then the slowly dawning realisation on Sam as he's chewing on this kind of grisly piece of meat. Oh, my God, he's just eaten cat. It's, oh, it's yeah. such a good punchline. I was laughing so hard at that scene. It's hilarious. <laughs> Yes, it's very funny, which makes my choice of favourite scene seem very, very serious in comparison. But it is the art gallery attempted murder scene at the beginning, Mm. because it's just such a beautiful piece of pure cinema with all of these static, brilliantly composed shots and the use of sound, the use of point of view, obscuring what's going on. And the way that that scene is then deconstructed obsessively as the film progressive, it's just a Hmm. wonderful piece of cinema. Yeah, I love that scene. I think it's amazing. Yes, it is. Most cliché horror moment. Very popular in the 70s, I think, this cliché. It's the killer taunting the investigators and victims over the phone. Seemed Ah, to be happening every single time there was a killer. They were always quite the chatty Cathy's. They'd always ring people up and taunt them a bit. So this happened in When a Stranger Calls and Black Christmas, both great examples of the calls are coming from inside the house Mm -hmm. trope as well. But even just straightforward police procedurals like Dirty Harry that had a serial killer operating, they would always be phoning people up and taunting them. The telephone seemed to be a great source of terror in that decade. (laughs) Yes. Well, my cliche for the film, uh, although it wasn't that cliche in this film, but when a killer is about to enter a house, they always cut the phone line and the power. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Although in this film, you see it kind of happen in real time. Mm. So you don't find out when the victim is in the house. Oh, grabs the phone. Oh, no, it's dead. It's not like that. Mm. She grabs it. Then there's a shot of the killer with the pliers, cutting the line. So mm. wasn't that cliche, but, you know, 70s, maybe this was the first time it ever been shown on film. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I suspect not, but, yeah, let's hope. 
<laughs> Best special effect. There aren't that many special effects in this film. Uh, it's, no. it's mostly a murder mystery thriller. Uh, there is one effect that I did notice, and it's when Ranieri, the, the husband of Monica, plummets to his death, mm. and it's a point of view from his point of view of him falling to the ground, and it looks amazing. I thought, it's a camera on like a bungee cord or a rope or something, and they're just mm. throwing it down. But no, they actually dropped a camera from the balcony of their apartment, and it did in <laughs> fact break. <laughs> oh, they managed no. to salvage the film, and yeah, great sort of effect. I'd never seen it before in such an old film, and obviously it's because they actually threw a camera to the ground. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, <laughs> pretty cool. Yep, that's the moment that I picked as well. It's it's a singular effect in the movie, and it, yeah, it's really disturbing actually. Him screaming yeah. and the camera just lunging towards the ground because it doesn't slow down. I thought, wow, how did they do that? And yeah, yeah, just threw the camera out the window. <laughs> Favourite sound effect. My favourite sound effect is when the pimp, who I call So Long, because to stop his stuttering, he says So Long at the end of every sentence for some mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. But when he knocks on his head to try and jog his memory, it makes a sound like a hardback book. Which oh, right. <laughs> made me giggle. It's not like a coconut or anything, but it's very hollow sounding. Oh, so it just made right. the very comical scene that that been more funny to me yeah sure (laughs) my favorite sound i don't know whether it was my favorite sound but it was a sound that i did notice and i or i always noticed this in sort of pre-70s films but whenever they smash like a window or some glass it always sounds like they're just smashing terracotta pots uh it doesn't sound like glass at all and in this film uh, it's a scene in the bus depot with the assassin with the gun with the silencer and he shoots out a bus window and yes, just sounds like a bunch of amphora vases being smashed. <laughs> <laughs> Not a pane of glass. I don't know no. why, but yes, always in these old films. Most funniest moment. Well, I think we've discussed our favourite funny scenes already. Uh, mine is the lineup scene. As soon as he shouted, right, bring out the perverts. I, just, <laughs> I had to pause the movie. I was laughing so much. I was not expecting that at all. Right. So right, that yeah. was mine. And yours? Yeah, mine was definitely hands down the the painter scene with with the cats and the realization. Oh, such a great build up (laughs) and uh, punchline. Oh, so good. (laughs) Yeah, I think this could well be the funniest Jallo movie I've ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) And that's our movies. Bellissimo. Oh, yes, it's that crucial time of the podcast, the final verdict. Uh, Should the bird with a crystal plumage be released from its Roman high art prison to be praised by all, (laughs) or should it be thrown off a balcony and plummet into the depths of the oubliette to be abandoned forever like 70s wallpaper? Uh, Conrad, (laughs) what is your final verdict for this film? 
Well, I think I don't think I can convincingly create any suspense here, <laughs> um, unlike the movie, because I was really quite impressed with this movie. I'd not seen it before. I'm not a huge fan of Giallo generally. I find it all a little bit exploitative and over the top, as you've mentioned. But this one I found really fascinating just in terms of its the way that it adapts the Hitchcockian style of being very subjective with the camera, but not so voyeuristic and exploitative that it's unpleasant to watch, apart from one of the murder scenes, which mm. is really quite icky. You can see how influential it's been because one of the murder scenes, which features a person in black slashing at a woman in an elevator with a straight razor, clearly influenced Brian De Palma's Dress to Kill, which also has a gender-related twist at the end of it. Mm -hmm. It's an influential film. It's visually stunning because of the cinematography by Vittorio Storaro. The score by Ennio Morricone is incredible. The characters are engaging. There's this parade of really hilarious characters. My favourite is the bring in the perverts inspector <laughs> who's yeah. just continually breaking the law and lying to journalists <laughs> while putting a victim in danger. So it's constantly entertaining. It's funny. It's visually inventive. The music's great. The sound is really incredible as well. The whole movie's dubbed, obviously, because it's an Italian production, but it's done very artfully with very creative use of silence. And although plot-wise, it just doesn't make a jot of sense. Uh, the, the whole middle section of the movie, I have not a fucking clue what's going on at all. And the final reveal makes no sense at all either. And the uh, perfunctory, let's explain why the woman's acting crazy by the expert scene is not convincing in the slightest. Mm -hmm. But I, I just, I really enjoyed the movie for what it was, which is just a suspenseful thrill ride. Yes. To every single frame of it, I thought was beautiful. So, mm. yes, I, I think it should be saved. I know it's an, a very early Argento and people tend to think of his later, more fantastical movies, but I actually thought this was better, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I 100% I agree. Very Hitchcockian, very restrained as well, not mm. over the top stylistic sort of a glimmer of what's to come uh, with Argento and yeah very very good filmmaking both cinematography and with sound and with the score and even the plot despite its ridiculousness <laughs> I found it so engaging and I was just constantly mm. trying to guess oh is this the killer is this the killer I would love the reveal at the end I didn't expect that twist I, I watched the uh, the Italian uh, sort of the original language version of this and even though it was dubbed yeah. it wasn't distracting mm. I often find with these Jello films the dubbing is so distracting and I can't get immersed but with this I didn't find it at all distracting and yeah I really loved it it's uh, definitely yeah. probably my favourite Argento film to date that I've seen wow that's a pretty ringing endorsement there <laughs> Well, I think that's us letting the bird with the crystal plumage fly, fly, fly. <laughs> fly away. <laughs> As an aside, that is the first movie that we have set free for four films now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, we've been on a roll. We, we dumped The Hollow Man, Howard the Duck, The Serpent and the Rainbow, and Doomsday, but... 
On our 50th episode, on the 50th anniversary of the bird with the crystal plumage, we set it free. So that's a nice positive note to end Ah, this special episode, I think. (laughs) (laughs) So any bird themes in our next uh, film, Conrad? Well, flight does come up, actually. Oh, it does. (laughs) As it happens. Yes, our next time we will be uh, stepping aside from murder and horror and women screaming for a change and instead doing something family-friendly and science fiction-y and fantastical because Mm. we will be looking at the 1986 Walt Disney film Flight of the Navigator. Ah, right. Yes, directed by Randall Kleiser, starring Joey Kramer, Cliff DeYoung, Veronica Cartwright, Matt Adler, a very young Sarah Jessica Parker, and uncredited Pee Wee Herman. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Doing the voice of an alien. So there we go. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Have you seen this movie before? I feel like I have, but I can't recall it. So it's going to be one of those films like Willow, where I thought I'd seen it, but I hadn't. (laughs) (laughs) He hadn't. It was on in the background in a birthday party or something. Probably, (laughs) probably. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's a childhood favourite of mine, and I believe it may well be a childhood favourite of our special guest who will be joining us. Oh, right. A returning guest. Oh, the intrigue continues. Yeah. (laughs) Indeed, yes. And if you want to keep up with us in these troubling times, please follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Movie Oobly It. Indeed, yes. We love to hear from you, especially right now. So please contact us via movie.oubliet at gmail.com if you want to email us. And if you're loving the show and you'd like to support us in some way, then please go over to Patreon where you can sponsor us for as little as a dollar. Mm-hmm. For $1, you can suggest movies and vote when we go for a listener's choice episode. And for $5, you get access to lots of bonus exclusive previously unreleased goodies, including behind-the-scenes videos. Oh, yes. You can see what we actually look like. <laughs> oh, gosh, you poor things with our home haircuts <laughs> and everything. <laughs> it's going to be just like Jumanji. We're going to be wearing just scraps of fabric with our unshaven beards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's only a matter of time. Oh my. And if you are enjoying the show, please give us a rating and review on whatever podcast app you are using. Yes. And if you give us a particularly favourable review, we'll read it out on the show. Oh, yes. We'll pronounce your name wrong. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. Ciao. How many times do I have to tell you? Ursula Andres belongs with the transvestites, not the perverts. Well, I should hope so.